My guest today is Fabienne Michaud. She's director at SDG Impact. It's an offshoot of the UNDP and it's focused on harnessing impact investing to fund solutions to the SDGs. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. SDG Impact uses the intelligence and insights it has on the ground in less developed countries all around the world to identify challenges and problems that are in need of private capital investments. They're a bridge between projects on the ground and investors, but they've also developed a handy set of impact standards which help investors to make better decisions and hopefully to boost their impact. All right, let's get into it. You can find all the show notes on my website at johntreadgold.com. And if you enjoy this one, please do jump onto Apple Podcasts and leave me a review because that will help more people find the show. So let's dive in to my conversation with Fabienne Michaud. Here we go. Fabienne, great to have you on today. I've been eager to speak with you for a long time, so thank you. Thanks, John. Pleasure to be here. Great. Now, look, let's talk about the UNDP. It's a huge organisation, but you're director of SDG Impact, and, and the focus there is on finding solutions to the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, and your tool of choice is Impact Investment. How is a giant organisation like the UNDP adapting to using financial mechanisms to uh, have positive impact? Thanks for the question. Yes, it's a reasonably recent foray for UNDP, which has obviously, you know, had much more of a focus on the development side. But a couple of years ago, the UNDP established the Finance Sector Hub, and this initiative sits within the Finance Sector Hub and very much is focused on looking at ways to provide resources and tools to the private sector to help catalyse private investment towards achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals. And to the private sector there. And so, of course, I think that's an interesting one. Whenever we talk about the UN, it's often state-based and nations working together, but this is a, a linkage between the private sector and the UNDP. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things with the sustainable development goals is obviously they were agreed to by, you know, all UN member states back in 2015. But a big part of the sustainable development goals and the 2030 sustainable agenda was the call on the private sector to participate in innovation and finding solutions towards the, the sustainable development goals, recognising that actually resources within the public sector aren't sufficient. So it's very much, you know, looking at that opportunity to bring together different parts of the ecosystem and different actors to work together collaboratively towards finding solutions to the sustainable development goals. Well, that's right. And, and at the core of my interest in impact investment and what really brought me into the whole sector was my development background and then working in finance at the same time and saw impact investing as a way to bring these two things together. So I sort of actually followed, you know, a lot of your programs early on with SDG impact maps. And so the two key 
initiatives that you've got, the SDG Investor Platform, which involves those maps, and then the SDG Impact Standards. We'll talk about them both today, but the, the Investor Platform is really interesting to me. I've sort of followed its progress, and, and, and early on there were some maps. The thing that really grabbed me was that rather than having private investors look at the world and say, what do I want to invest in? And we had a lot of people complaining that there wasn't enough deal flow. But then on the other side, we had sovereign states, we had countries, we had you know, UNDP offices, I assume, sort of going, you know, we'd love some investment over here. And there was nothing to link the two. And so it was like, oh, this is amazing. We've finally got a group in the UNDP that are speaking the finance language and that are also speaking for the beneficiaries and saying, this is what this country really needs and this is how you can invest in it. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking and let you talk about it because uh, it's a great development. Yeah, I think the maps are fantastic. And I think part of what you know UNDP is trying to do is look at what its particular strengths and value proposition are, You know, not looking really to replicate what other people are doing, but really trying to use the resources it has to, to provide something that fills gaps in the current market infrastructure. And of course, UNDP has presence in over 170 countries worldwide. And the maps are really looking to try and leverage that footprint and what UNDP does well and the relationships that it has to bring, you know, a different perspective and lens to um, where those needs are. So the SDG Impact Initiative developed a methodology with Dahlberg to really bring together where there's SDG need in a country with policy priority that then will effectively create that nexus for private sector investment where there is an investable opportunity. So the maps follow a set and systematic methodology for doing that and really bring together some some in-depth desk research as well as focused in-country interviews with both public and private sector actors. So at the moment, what we've got on the platform, which is an SDG investor platform, which anyone can go on and have a play with, we have maps from 13 countries so far on the site. We're in the process of um, completing a further 25 maps at the moment, including seven maps around the ASEAN region. So, you know, the countries we have so far, Armenia, Brazil, Colombia, Ghana, India, Kenya, Namibia, Nigeria, Paraguay, Rwanda, South Africa, Turkey and Uganda. So quite a broad range there, but we would hope to continue adding to that and obviously updating the maps, you know, as needed to keep them current. Okay. And so I imagine the core benefit, the core value add of of these maps and the database system is the uh, investment intelligence within it. So where does the core of that come from? Is it sort of the UNDP teams on the ground? Do they scrape data more broadly? Where does it all come from? Yeah, so a lot of the data, it starts with the UNDP's relationships on the ground. So a lot of the data comes from public sector sources. So, you know, we need to actually be working, you know, in concert with public sector actors to access that data, but also through consultations with private sector actors as well, and really there to actually identify, you know, what are the investable business models and what is the return profile and investment characteristics 
that would be achievable in certain areas. And obviously, you know, alongside that, you know, what's the nature of the impact that can be created and the need that's being filled by looking at those particular areas. What the maps don't do is give you, you know, a list of deals. It's very much looking at where the investable opportunity areas are and what the types of business models are that would, you know, lead to an investable return profile for private sector investors. And have, have there been any challenges in the translation role between the government state-based sort of outputs and then trying to speak the language of finance and investment? I guess that's sort of your role, but um, what have been some of the challenges there? I think that um, from that perspective, UNDPs, you know, probably used to playing that role and, and is a good bridge, you know, in terms of having a long history in terms of working on the development side and, and with public sector partners. And, you know, more recently, I guess, in terms of the development of the MAP methodology and building that capability, you know, within UNDP and the finance sector hub, you know, creating that bridge to actually translate that into information that's useful for private sector actors as well. And I think, you know, that that translation piece and, and, you know, the sustainable development goals and that, you know, the targets and indicators are set at that country level. I think that that's an area that will continue to develop and evolve as we look for ways to continue to bridge that gap between sustainable development goals and the related indicators and targets and what makes sense and is, you know, useful and actionable for the private sector to use in terms of measuring their own contributions towards the SDGs. And it doesn't recommend deals directly, but do you have sort of oversight? Are you able to get a feeling for, you know, deals that have resulted from the data and the intelligence you've sort of offered and the the tips you've offered? Yeah, I think a good example of that is Bank Colombia, who actually made a commitment based on the map that was done in Colombia to invest in areas that were identified by the map. So I think that we are starting to see that translation. There's more work to do in terms of, you know, how that information is used and translates into real deal activity. So, you know, obviously from an investor perspective, they're normally responding to actual transactions, not necessarily to opportunity areas that then need intermediaries and, you know, counterparties to come together around to actually create that deal. But, you know, I think that that will be a natural evolution as we continue to evolve and build the platform out. I also think that, you know, over time, there will be, you know, a convergence with the standards that you know, in terms of actually being able to bring or highlight deals on the platform to the extent that those transactions or issuers are, you know, embedding and implementing the standards that will give a more rigorous space to actually be able to highlight those transactions. Because obviously there's a lot of due diligence that needs to go around the transactions as well, which isn't the role of UNDP. You know, one of our strengths or value propositions is that we're not part of the transaction process. We're independent to the the transaction process. Mm. So let's talk about the standards a little bit more then. That's the other key initiative that you're developing. The way I understand it is sort of modular. You've got a set of standards, one by one being released for different groups. I think it was private equity first. I remember seeing private equity come out and since then bond issuers and enterprises. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Are there there other groups on the way? Where are you at? 
There's actually four sets of standards. Within SDG Impact, our focus has really been on private sector actors, but we've also collaborated with the OECD to release a set of standards jointly called the OECD UNDP Impact Standards for Financing Sustainable Development. So those standards are actually more targeted to OECD donor countries to use with their donor partners or private sector partners in financing development. So, you know, institutions like, you know, development finance institutions and the like. You know, so we have four sets of standards that I sort of see as a family. And, you know, one of the gaps that we felt was apparent was that, you know, we do still tend to operate very much in silos. So one of the things that we really tried to bring to life with the standards was to create a shared language and approach that helped to, you know, really unite actors across the ecosystem together in that shared platform and approach to integrating sustainability and contributing to the SDGs into decision making. And, you know, recognising that more and more, you know, solutions to the SDGs will need that cross-sector collaboration. So, you know, I think that that was really a big part of what we were trying to do. At the moment, we really want to try and get the next phase of development around the assurance process, particularly for the three sets of the private sector standards for private equity, bond issuers and enterprises done, but we haven't ruled out other sets of standards. We're looking at the moment potentially at um, working with the GISD Global Investors Group on some guidelines for asset owners that wouldn't be a set of standards, but would really reflect the standards in terms of translating those standards into decision-making at, at that sort of institutional investment level. So that's where we're at at the moment, I guess, in terms of that development process. Yeah, I mean, we talk about a lot of different frameworks and impact metrics on this show. Where do you feel that the impact standards sit within the the impact stack that an organisation might have, right? And you've got sort of different layers of frameworks. Where where does uh, the standard sit and, you know, what will it sit alongside, I guess? You know, I really consider that the standards have been designed to be the overarching organising framework for all of those frameworks. So very much the development of the standards started with really looking at the high level principles that were in place, things like IFC operating principles, you know, the UNEPFI principles for positive impact finance, UNGC has principles for integrated SDG financing for CFOs. So we looked at all of those frameworks and started there and really wanted to make the standards compatible with all of those high-level principles, but also worked hard to identify where the gaps were. And really, I think when you look at the standards, I think the areas that stand out to me as more underdeveloped were around integrating impact management into strategy and also governance and also adding some of the contextual pieces. So, you know, the measurement piece really focusing on the context around, you know, where are you starting from? Are you contributing at a rate that's ambitious enough to actually achieve the sustainable development goals? You know, are you taking all material impacts into account? Because, you know, I think when we look at the current frameworks, a lot of them are focusing on a couple of areas, but not necessarily focusing on the most material impacts or, you know, focusing on 
also managing negative impacts alongside trying to achieve, you know, positive intended outcomes. And we worked hard not to replicate good work that was already there, but provide the context for how those other frameworks would be used within, you know, a holistic end-to-end operating system. So internally in organisations, you have embedded management systems for managing financial performance and risks. And then that leads to your, you know, external reporting and financial accounting. And I see this being very similar that, you know, before we can report well on impact, we need to manage it well within the organisation and integrate it into decision making. And we will get much better results if we do that and then report on what we've done than having, you know, almost an exclusive focus on trying to report, you know, on sustainability or impact when, you know, before that you haven't integrated it into the decision making processes of the organisation. And and I think another element that jumps out is the SDGs, right? And that that's obviously very core to this whole process when for many it's sort of an optional indicator or metric for you the SDGs really are, are hardwired. You know, I think we're at an interesting time in history. You know, I think um, there's a lot of trends, you know, climate change, what we're going through with the pandemic, population growth, rising inequality, all of these things, you know, are leading to a tipping point where more and more sustainability and contributing positively to sustainable development outcomes is becoming more important in terms of, you know, the opportunity set going forward and certainly in terms of in terms of managing risks. So definitely within the standards, you know, our overarching philosophy is that the shift we need to see is um, a shift from, you know, the SDGs being an add-on to what business gets done to being how all business gets done. You know, obviously this is something that probably resonates and is a little less foreign to people who are already, you know, working in the impact investment space. But actually we think this is the way forward for all decisions, not just in the impact investing field, but, you know, how all organisations should be approaching decision-making and how all investors should be thinking about the investments they make. So, you know, it's great if we're trying to create investments that help to solve, you know, key problems. But if that's sort of limited to, you know, one to 5% of the total world's capital, what are the impacts? the other 95 to 99% of capital are having. And, you know, if they're continuing to create negative impacts for sustainable development and and stakeholders, then, you know, we're sort of trying to empty out the ocean with a teaspoon. We're just, you know, seeding the solutions and problems that need to be solved tomorrow and, and in the next decade and in the future. So, you know, we're very keen to see this progress, you know, beyond just the impact investing sphere to start being integrated more centrally and mainstream private sector decision making. That's it. There was a line that came up as I was I was reading in preparation for this. And, and, and it said it's, you know, you guys are really focused on moving from SDG alignment to SDG action. And in the private sector, it's, you know, it's easy to map sort of business as usual and, and put a few of the coloured squares along with it. But actually shifting that to having the meeting and say, how can we change our operations to target this outcome? You know, that's a very different process. Yes. 
but really necessary, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the sustainable development goals, you know, were agreed by all member states because they felt it was important to actually achieve the sustainable development goals. And if all we're doing is actually looking for ways to, you know, use the sustainable development goals as another reporting filter to report what we already did differently, we're not going to create the change we need to actually, you know, put us on the path that's going to help achieve the sustainable development goals. So that moving from just reporting what you did differently to actually using the sustainable development goals strategically to make different decisions, I think is a big shift. But, you know, there's plenty of research to show that there is you know, significant opportunities in terms of supporting economic growth by working towards solving some of these challenges. And, you know, I think, you know, some of the statistics that come to mind are that the global economy could be, you know, more than a quarter bigger if we could just achieve gender equality. And there's uh, something like 12 trillion dollars annually, a business opportunity if we can concentrate on solutions, you know, in four key focus areas of the sustainable development goals around sustainable cities and and others and the like. So we're all well aware of the, you know, potential risks and the constraints to, you know, economic growth and, you know, the likelihood of economic contraction of not taking sufficient climate action. So using the SDGs as a lens for decision-making and identifying you know, new business opportunities and also the areas where we need to have some creative destruction and, you know, see the passing of some business models to be replaced by others is really what we're trying to support with this framework and give people the tools to be able to use the framework to do that. That's it. And the SDG investor platform, which we talked about at the start, that also is sort of a a plethora of ideas, right? You don't have to um, simply apply the lens or what your organisation normally does. You You can look at that and get a whole range of very real opportunities that are tangibly solving the SDGs right there. So it's all tying together nicely. But look, moving on from that, I'd love to get a feel just for how you ended up where you are, Fabienne. We've heard today you clearly have you know a whole range of skill sets. You know, looking back along your resume, you've been on lots of boards, but you also spent a big chunk of time in your career at, at S&P the ratings and data company, head of developed markets for for Asia Pacific. What did you do there? Tell us about that period of your life. You know, I think all of us, John, are a product of our experiences. So I think that all of the experiences I've had have led me to where I am today. You know, S&P, I think, is really interesting. You know, my technical area of expertise is securitisation. Securitisation is largely about, um, you know, carving up credit risk to meet the requirements and preferences of different investors. And I think that in, in many respects, that, you know, mindset is is actually quite useful in terms of, you know, starting to think about different types of outcomes and, you know, how you actually bring those together in terms of meeting, um, you know, different stakeholders' needs. I was the Asia-Pacific Regional Practice Leader for Structured Finance when the global financial crisis hit. And, you know, I think that that was a fairly formative, you know, experience. It was a really interesting and challenging time to be working for a credit rating agency, particularly in structured finance. So I moved from that role into a criteria development role. So as the chief criteria officer for 
Asia Pacific, but also as head of the Criteria Committee for Global Residential Mortgage-Backed Securities. So as part of that, I actually was involved in the review of criteria for all of the residential mortgage-backed securities in the US that were written in the lead up to the subprime crisis. So, you know, that led to a re-rating of you know, effectively tens of thousands of securities. So that, again, was, you know, another really interesting sort of experience and then moved on from there, you know, into the head of developed markets role for Asia Pacific. Digging into that a little bit more, I mean, very interesting background and I can't imagine what you went through in, in, in 08. That would have been pretty wild and, and, and not getting out of it, diving back in to re-rate all of those securities is a mammoth task. You know, you were head of developed markets, but obviously... That's worlds away from working in the development industry. Where did that intersection happen? When did you shift across to working in development? Well, I've always been interested and I think that definitely around the financial crisis, just that sense that the financial system and capital markets need to be an instrument that serves the economy and society, not be a law unto itself, I think, you know, really came to the fore. So, you know, looking for ways that I could use basically 30 years of financial and analytical skills and training and apply that in a way that would actually lead to positive change and positive outcomes. You know, I think the GFC was a trigger point to start looking at that and that pathway into a more development focus. Before I left s and I've started participating on some not-for-profit boards and, and, you know, I've pretty much stayed in that vein since leaving s and five years ago. You know, I'm much more comfortable and happy contributing in, you know, member-based or not-for-profit type boards. I'm not sort of, you know, looking to join private sector boards. I really enjoy that stakeholder focus and everything I do now is, is very integrated and interwoven and crosses over, I guess, into everything else I do and I use everything that I do in all of the things I'm involved in to further the other things I'm involved in. So very complimentary. Yeah. Oh, look, thanks for sharing that. It's always good to get an insight into where someone came from to understand where they've ended up and, and help the younger generation get a feel for charting their own path. But look, before we wrap up, I'd love to get a book recommendation. You're down in Melbourne in lockdown. I'm in Sydney in lockdown. What are you reading? I find choosing one thing very difficult, John. You know, when anyone asks me what my favourite colour is, I always say rainbow because I can't choose one colour and it probably depends on the day as to which one I prefer. So, you know, along that same theme around the journey to get to where I am today, I've got, you know, a couple that I think have really sort of informed, you know, my own sort of worldview over the last few years. The first one's A History of Knowledge by Charles Van Doren. And when I read that, I think what I took away from that was that our accumulated knowledge is growing and evolving at a much faster pace than we are as a species. <laughs> we still are born and go through a process and then die and the process starts over again. But the knowledge that we're accumulating, you know, across generations is accelerating at a much faster pace. And are we really equipped to deal with that? The second one would be the passion of the Western mind. And that to me, really reinforced just how entrenched and subconscious 
a lot of our thinking and collective worldview is and just where power resides in the world. And of course, you know, one of the things that stands out there too is just the absence of female voices in that history. The third is a coffee table book by Alain de Baton called The News. And The News really highlighted to me the importance and the responsibility of people that provide information to provide that information in context, you know, whether that's providers of the news, rating providers, organisations providing their annual accounts or sustainability reports, it's really important to report information in context. One I've read more recently is called Leading from the Emerging Future from Ecosystems to Ecosystems by Otto Sharma. I think that really captures for me the essence of the change we're trying to instill through the standards to really move from that inside out thinking to outside in thinking. And then the one that I haven't read yet, but is on my reading list is Winners Take All. You know, that's really exploring the system, actually reinforcing the inequalities and inequity that we have in the world to maintain the status quo and maintain vested interests and and privilege. So that's on my list, but I haven't got to it yet. And from a non-fiction perspective, I think one of my favourite books over the last year or so is is The Night Circus, which is actually a fantasy book, but I just absolutely loved it. It explores me away from all problems and thinking about COVID. <laughs> Perfect. What a mix. That's a great list. Thank you for that. I think, unfortunately, the uh, lockdown we're all in the middle of doesn't look like it's got an end anytime soon. So great to have such a long list to work through. But look, appreciate all of that, Fabienne. Really great stories, really great insights into all of the initiatives you're building. So I ask my listeners to jump onto the website. We'll we'll put all the links in the show notes so they can read up about the investor maps, the platform and the standards. It's great stuff. So thank you for all of that and, and let's stay in touch. Thanks so much, John. That's been a pleasure. 